Welcome to the official Screen Writing Podcast. I'm Adam Levenberg. I know it has been a very long time since I have done a podcast, and that's because I've been very busy with consulting on not just screenwriters' ideas with concept consultations and scripts, but also for a new website for screenwriters that will connect screenwriters with producers all over the world. I can't give any more details on that, but if you sign up for my mailing list at officialscreenwriting.com, you will be one of the first people who gets to use it. Uh, You can be a beta tester, and you're going to get to use it for free. Later, people are going to be charged. It's going to be a couple months until the site is ready, but when it is, you will be the first to know, and you're going to get to use it for free. By the way, official screenwriting is also where you can hire me to read your script or hire me for a concept consultation. I really love doing those. You know, it says on the website that the consultation is an hour long. I actually looked back at some of the Skypes that I've done, and they tend to be about an hour and 20 minutes. I'm not really nuts about keeping the time minimized. It's more about just finishing the conversation as we need to. Moving on today, I want to talk about a couple of things that I have seen. Uh, First up, The Kingsman, The Secret Service. I am a huge fan of Matthew Vaughn. Kick-Ass was one of my favorite movies, so of course I went to see Kingsman The Secret Service, which is a whole lot more of the same, except it's bigger and more expensive, and in many ways a companion piece to Kick-Ass, because it's based on a comic book from the same guys who wrote Kick-Ass. It's adapted by Jane Goldman, who by the way is Matthew Vaughn's wife. Um, It has the same director. So it's essentially the same sort of approach to a teen action comedy, except it's a lot more expensive, the action's a lot bigger, and there's a lot more visual effects. The concept takes a young street thug whose father was a Kingsman and died when he was a very little boy, um, and puts him in this training program where I think six or seven kids or teenagers are in competition to become the next Kingsman. And the Kingsman is a group of gentlemen spies. They are upper crust, upper class, look like businessmen. They wear perfectly tailored suits, except they're basically ninjas. And they carry out missions that official government spy organizations cannot. They exist completely in secret. So unlike our Secret Service, these guys are actually a Secret Service. But we have this class struggle going on. We have this kid, even though his father was a Kingsman, this kid has basically grown up on the streets. Early on, we see him stealing a car. He is, for all intents and purposes, a street thug. And he is brought into this organization that seems to be all about class and refinement. But as his mentor points out, played by Colin Firth, as his mentor points out, Being a gentleman has nothing to do with the way that you speak. It's the way you behave. And this is one major area where the film just fails because it's not clear exactly what it means in the universe of this film and in the location of this school, what it means to be a gentleman. So there are some other big problems with the film. Another one is that once we are inside of this school, once this kid is competing with seven other kids to become the next Kingsman, We have a problem because while there's some personality quirks given to each kid, we don't really learn anything about them 
other than that some of them fail at the tests that are being thrown at them, and that's how the whittling process unfolds. But at the end, we're left with two characters. And we don't understand what's so special about our hero's main competition by the time that we get there. I also think that this schooling process in the film is abbreviated, but I think that the mistake that the film makes is that it spends too little time on the schooling stuff, too little time on what these, on the skills that these kids are being endowed with and what it means to be a gentleman spy. Um, and too much attention is given to the third act where there's a massive action sequence that probably could have been trimmed down in favor of some character building stuff along the way. But overall, it's a film that I enjoyed a lot and would be surprised if it wasn't one of my favorite movies of 2015. Speaking of favorite movies, okay, I'm sure some of you want to hear me talk about the Oscars. My first reaction to Birdman winning was that, wow, Pulp Fiction finally won Best Picture. Here is a film that really functions also as a movie, but is just far enough off the beaten path that a lot of the older moviegoers who think that they like prestige cinema would be challenged by. And remember, most moviegoers don't like to be challenged. They don't want to think. They essentially want to feel a very certain way, which is exactly what the imitation game delivers. However, the reason that Birdman won was because the imitation game, as the process moved forward, and, you know, there is a campaign that happens with the Oscars that influences really how a lot of votes shift, because as the field winnows to the potential winners, which always happens, whether there's five nominees or eight or ten, Oscar voters look at those sort of finalists and make their decisions accordingly. Very few people vote for a movie that doesn't have the chance to win Best Picture, and usually that comes down to two or three. This year, it was The Imitation Game, Boyhood, and Birdman, and my analysis of it is that The Imitation Game simply did not have enough momentum. It wasn't winning enough awards in some of the preliminary uh, award ceremonies that lead up to the Oscars, and it came down to Birdman and Boyhood, and the Academy will always go for the film that is much more like a movie. Um, I've talked about this in the past. I've written about it. In my mind, there are films and there are movies, and movies are respectful of something close, at least, to the Save the Cat structure. They deliver a very specific type of experience that Boyhood simply doesn't. Boyhood is not interested in delivering anything resembling a movie. I mean, it. there's no stakes, there's no villain, there's no central goal. It's simply a lot of different slices of life shot over the course of 11 years, I think. So in the case of uh, Birdman, it won by default in a way because its main competition was so far outside the mainstream that it actually might have even helped Birdman because it made Birdman look a little bit more traditional. However, you know, again, Birdman is the kind of thing that when I speak to some of my older relatives, they see it and some of them like it, some of them don't. Some don't quite know what to make of it. And 
these are the same people who generally praise the imitation game because it delivers exactly the type of feeling that people want to feel when they go to the movies. Um, I actually really liked Birdman a lot, and I have some thoughts on the final scene. All I will say, and this is a non-spoiler, but the final scene does not exist in reality. And I throw that out there because I've been thinking about writing a column about this, but I may lack the sort of vocabulary, advanced film theory vocabulary, which I know that I learned back when I was in college, but I probably have not been forced to use, and therefore it's gone sort of slipped away from me. So I, I may even have to do some research in order to be able to write that, and then I'm probably just not going to do it. Um, but it was interesting to me because my favorite movie of 2014, while Birdman comes close, was actually The Babadook. Some of you may not know what The Babadook is. That's okay. But I can tell you that it is a small, under $1 million horror movie that comes out of Australia. It is written and directed by a woman named Jennifer Kent. And what is so interesting about that is that it is one of the greatest horror movies I have ever seen. It is a film of such perfection on every level that you almost never see anything like that in terms of an under $1 million movie where, you know, sometimes the style works, but the performances are a little bit off. I think Clerks is an example of that where, you know, we like the screenwriting of Clerks, but the cinematography isn't anything to write home about. And the actors, while they perform well in the film, you know, very few of them have gone on to much, you know, success, maybe for a reason. Um, but in this film, everything is firing on all cylinders. It is not only a perfect film, it is a perfect horror movie. And I think the way that I can classify that is that it does a couple of things. Uh, and I, I want to talk about it also in terms of what it's not, because there are horror movies that I've loved over the last decade. Eden Lake is an example of that. Eden Lake is also, I think, an Australian film uh, that was very low budget. And the thing about it is that it's just a survival horror movie. It's very exciting to watch. That's actually what The Descent is. The Descent is a survival horror movie that then throws monsters into the mix halfway through. It is terrifying. It is nail-biting. It is chilling. It is all of these things, but it is absolutely nothing more than that, than a thrill ride, than something that gets you biting your nails as you sit there in terror and jump out of your seat at some of the shocks that come. The Babadook is on a completely different level. It literally studies all of the different types of horror films that there are and incorporates all of them into the narrative. And then there's an entire second level of the movie going on. Now, it's very interesting. I'm not giving anything away when I say that there's some debate that I've seen on message boards where people argue, well, is the monster real? Because the concept is very much like The Ring, that this mother reads her child a children's book, and then this monster named the Babadook uh, basically starts creeping into their life. Once they've read this story together, they have activated the monster and their lives turn into a living hell as a result of this. So again, it's sort of like the ring that once the curse is unleashed, uh, all sorts of bad shit happens. That's just the way in though, because this film is constantly threatening to go in a lot of different directions using 
all of the different subgenres of horror in order to provide some misdirection or temporary disorientation. That is something that is partially screenwriting, partially great filmmaking. Um, let me give you one quick example from early on in the film. There is a scene where the female lead is being told by her best friend, hey, there's something wrong with your kid. There's something really off here. And then our hero looks over, and the kid is standing on top of like a 10-foot jungle gym that's over concrete. And, you know, like if this kid fell off, he could crack his head open and die. But it just cuts. We see it, and it cuts, and then it cuts to the kid in the car screaming his head off. And we're left to wonder, what just happened? Did he fall off of the jungle gym? Did he, like, what's going on here? And then it's quite clear that he's throwing a tantrum. So it's that momentary disorientation that the best films have. You know, one of the things about screenwriting is that we're constantly hammering clarity. But the level above that, the next step, is momentary disorientation. And, you know, that's something when I'm doing my consultations, I will put notes on the document, and often I'll just ask questions. I don't understand why this is, or what is this character doing here, or why did this just happen? And I'll do that as I'm reading. That's the first step. And then, of course, then once I've read the entire thing, I will do an entire set of notes, and then we talk about it. But uh, for these questions, the best screenplays actually have me asking questions that then pay off where it, the question is purposely being left dangling in order to pay off at a later point. And it's those momentary disorientations or those story disorientations and questions that tease the audience and keep them hooked in. I just gave an example of how this film kept me hooked in from the scene on the playground to the scene in the car. It asked a question at the end of the scene. It cut the scene early. We got out early and came in late into the car. But the interesting thing about this second level is that there are some questions as to whether the monster in the Babadook actually exists, because the monster is a metaphor. And I won't get any more specific than that. Um, the monster is a metaphor for something else. But for the reality of this film, the monster actually exists. These characters are actually going through this thing, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and their lives are being threatened by this monster. The fact that the monster actually represents something else that allows you to go back and sort of read into other scenes and situations and to look at the character motivations, that is something that is not just a cherry on top, it is an exceptional addition to a genre where that second level is almost never required in order to satisfy an audience. But from a critical perspective, that kind of thing is greatly respected and I believe elevates not just the film, but the entire genre by showing how it can be done. And to think that this is done by a first-time filmmaker and being done by a woman, which is something that rarely, rarely happens um, inside of action and horror. Take things to the next level in a way that puts all of the working filmmakers out there to shame. I don't think Wes Craven ever made a film as good or as important as The Bob. I think I wrote that in an alternative universe, I could imagine Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick, and Peter Jackson talking about why The Babadook is the greatest film of the last 10 years. And notice I didn't say the greatest horror film in the last 10 years, the greatest film. Again, I would argue that if you're looking for outstanding achievement in feature filmmaking, the Academy actually got it right this year, and it's. I think that Birdman is that. Birdman is the outstanding achievement in film of 2014. 
But the Babadook comes pretty fucking close. And critics agree because if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, it's at 98%. Before I go, I want to talk about Will Smith in Focus very quickly. This is a film by Requa and Fakara, who are one of the greatest screenwriting teams working in Hollywood and have now graduated to being directors in addition to very, very highly paid screenwriters. These are the guys who wrote the, I think, underrated film Cats and Dogs, although I saw that a very long time ago, and the beloved Bad Santa. Their first film as directors was the amazing I Love You, Philip Morris, with with Jim Carrey and Ewan McGregor as prison inmates who become lovers, and it's essentially a con man movie, which is so interesting because... Focus falls into their wheelhouse. They've done a con man movie really, really well, and they tried to do it again, and it just doesn't work on almost any level. So if you haven't seen I Love You, Philip Morris, please go see that. If you haven't seen Bad Santa, I don't know what you're waiting for. Bad Santa is fucking hysterical. But the problem here with Focus, I think that some critics would say, oh, there's no chemistry between the leads. I would argue there's no chemistry written into the screenwriting. The premise is that Will Smith is a con man who runs operations during big events. So let's say the Super Bowl is going on and there's a couple hundred thousand extra people in New Orleans. He brings a team of people down to New Orleans and then has them operating on the streets, stealing watches, stealing purses, stealing phones, all that kind of stuff, and then has an entire operation set up in a warehouse where they sell all the stuff on eBay immediately and pick up stakes after the event ends and leave town and split up the money among his, like, 20 employees. So that's sort of how he operates, and he meets this young woman played by Margaret Roby, who some of us may remember from The Wolf of Wall Street as Leonardo DiCaprio's wife, And she is an aspiring young con artist. So Will Smith not only is her mentor, but of course becomes her love interest. And the problem with this film is twofold. First off, it suffers from the funny people mistake. And I use the funny people mistake, that's actually terminology I've come up with, because the film Funny People with Adam Sandler and Seth Rogen is marketed as an Adam Sandler movie. His name is first above the the title. The problem with Funny People is that it's a two and a half hour movie that gives equal footing to both Seth Rogen and Adam Sandler, but it doesn't seem to realize that it's Seth Rogen's movie. He is our hero. He is our perspective. Adam Sandler is his mentor. And to put them on equal footing, you you end up with a two and a half hour movie that just gets boring because it really needs to be whittled down to Seth Rogen's perspective. I believe the film, which was savaged by critics and ignored by audiences, I think that film might have actually worked if it was an hour and 50 minutes, but that would have required cutting about 40 minutes of Adam Sandler's stuff, and at the time, he was the bigger star. And this is how sort of the star system works often. Every one of the things that Judd Apatow was probably working was in service to Adam Sandler and what type of character he wanted to play and what he thought his character would do. And... All of that is valid and worthwhile, and when actors can provide that and provide really in-depth understanding of a character and help a writer get that script ready for production, that's a great thing. The problem is that if that person doing that is not the hero, 
or not the central perspective of the film, you end up with a film that's completely out of balance. And I think that was also a problem that the movie Night and Day had, where Tom Cruise's character, there was so much work put into that, because Tom Cruise is probably the best star maybe who's ever lived. There's been nobody who really understands screenwriting better. But the problem with the movie Night and Day is that so much of that work went into keeping Tom Cruise happy, and so much of that attention went into keeping Tom Cruise on board to do this movie, that it really ignored the Cameron Diaz character. And as we know, the Tom Cruise character in that film is largely insane. So Focus has that problem where all of the screenplay development has gone towards keeping Will Smith interested in doing that movie and listening to his concerns and addressing them. The problem is that he's not the central perspective. The, the other problem with this film is that she really is not the central perspective either. Both of these characters are conning each other in certain ways. And we find out at the end how they've conned each other. And the, the problem here, and I won't give any spoilers away, but the problem here is that there's no central perspective. There was actually a con artist movie called Duplicity with Julia Roberts and Clive Owen. It was the film uh, that was the follow-up from the guy who did Michael Clayton. And the problem with that movie was the same thing, where it was two con artists, and we really didn't know what they were up to. It was just sort of a jump. Everything was just a jumble until at the end we find out how it all sort of played out. And it's a great thing if you can even follow it at that point, because you often have to recontextualize everything that you've seen now that this quote-unquote twist has occurred. So as you go forward with your screenplays, I want you to really think, who is our central perspective? Who is it that we're following? Whose eyes are the actions unfolding from the perspective of? And write like that. It's totally okay for a character, and I wrote this in my book, which is, by the way, available on Amazon and on Kindle. I actually said something like, it's okay for the character to have a trick up their sleeve. Like at the end of a movie like Ocean's Eleven, George Clooney has a trick up his sleeve. We're not really on board. We don't know that he did whatever the hell it was that he did in order to survive whatever situation he got put into, but it makes sense, and we go along with it, and it's okay, because often in movies a character will do that. They'll have a trick up their sleeve, and they're the hero, but we didn't necessarily see them preparing for it. That we can swallow. What we can't do is spend two hours watching them do things, and then find out later that we need to recontextualize everything that we just saw them do with all this new information that goes to their motivation. And I think that's what's so problematic, now that I get to speak it aloud. That's why a film like Duplicity or Focus doesn't work. It's because while it's okay for a character to have a trick up their sleeve at the end in order to survive or to defeat the villain, often that finishing move is the result of a trick up their sleeve, something we didn't see them prepare for, but that makes sense in terms of what we've seen them train for. Uh, in, in the case of Focus and Duplicity, it forces us to recalculate the motivations that the characters had as we've gone through the entire movie. And that becomes a problem. The result is a, a spectacle that unfolds in front of you without ever making you, the audience member, a part of it. And that becomes a very disorienting, and I've used that word a couple times today, uh, a very disorienting experience. And it divorces us, really, from everything that we just saw. And the thing that I'm going to leave you with is that the movie Focus does something that you should really be thinking about doing if you're writing a screenplay. And that's something that also Birdman does, and that's something that Kingsman The Secret Service does, which is that the best films and TV show premises 
surround people who are very, very, very good at their jobs. That's it. You know, I say in my book, well, the best films are about experts in their fields. But let's just say they're about characters who are very, very good at their jobs. Focus, Will Smith is a great con artist who knows all the ins and outs of the con game. In Birdman, you have an actor who has had a very successful career as a movie star. Um, in Kingsman, the Secret Service, you have gentlemen spies who can not only wear a suit, walk down the streets of London looking like businessmen, but they can also be ninjas when the occasion occurs for them to do so. The Equalizer is about a well-trained assassin, basically. Uh, maybe I'll talk about The Equalizer a little bit next week. And then if I look at some of the TV I've been watching... A friend of mine and I were talking about why The Shield is such a great show, and the answer is that the Vic Mackey character is great at his job. He's incredibly effective. And I'm going to give you one last thought about House of Cards, and I won't give away any spoilers, but I was thinking about the hero of House of Cards. Why do we like watching House of Cards? Why are people still willing to stay up all night burning through episodes of season three the weekend that they're released if the character is such a fucking snake. Because he is that. He has no friends. He's a horrible, evil human being at the core. Here's why it is. And let's look at it in terms of Vic Mackey. Because Vic Mackey from The Shield was great at his job, loves his friends, loves his kids, and is untouchable because he's so effective. He's also a touch of crazy. He's willing to do anything in order to survive. That's where Vic Mackey overlaps with Frank Underwood on House of Cards. Because Frank is literally willing to do anything, including murder, in order to stay afloat. But here's what I realized. Frank Underwood doesn't even have any kids, which is Definitely for the best. Uh, this guy would not be a good father. He doesn't love his friends because he doesn't have any other than his wife. And even that is really questionable because they're not friends. They're essentially power partners. What makes Frank Underwood so interesting is that he's very effective at his job. He's very, very good at what he does. He is an expert. And if you look at what he's pursuing... It often is something that is relatively sympathetic. And that's a really interesting divorce happening. Because in season three, and this is not a spoiler, one of the things that Frank is pursuing is a peace agreement with Russia. And the domestic policy that he's pushing is something called America Works, which is basically a New Deal era style jobs program where the government is just going to give jobs to people who need them. And both of these things are completely understandable. Um, they're things that we can actually sort of root for. And if you think back to season one of House of Cards, we watch the process of Frank trying to put together an education bill. You know, it's so interesting that he doesn't like people. People don't like him. He has no relationship to the common man whatsoever. And yet the things that he's trying to achieve in theory are things that we can all get behind and root for him to accomplish. That's all for this week. Again, you can sign up for my mailing list at officialscreenwriting.com. 
please consider hiring me to talk about your concept with a concept consultation or a script consultation. You can buy my book, The Starter Screenplay, on Amazon in print or for Kindle. Thanks for listening. Thank you.